Take your worst nightmares and put my face on. Accurate. It's Tommy Lynn, Tommy Lynn Sells. Mm. And if you that guys is accurate. Haven't guessed it. We're going to go into part two of Tommy Lynn Sells. This is Jen. This is Becky. Hey, and this is Too Close to Home. Welcome. Welcome home. Episode two of Very Terrible Man. Oh, yeah. So definitely a mushroom stamp warning here that there's going to be uh, more murder, more sexual assault, more rape, more violence. So. Um, no babies in this one, though, I don't think, that I can remember. Shit. It Let's just, just go ahead and put that out there. It might be. I don't know. He fucking killed everybody who could. This episode will slap you right in the face. When they say it slaps, that usually means in a good way, but this slaps in a whole different way. Yeah, not the good way. <laughs> this is like a dramatic slap. With a glove. <laughs> <laughs> So just reiterate my resources, and I do have another one that I added to this one for this portion. We have Wikipedia. Uh, we have Most Evil Season 1, Episode 2, Through the Window, the terrifying true story of the cross-country killer Tommy Lynn Sells by Diane Fanning. Great. Real short title, huh? Real short. Time Magazine, Texas execution back on after the appeals court overturns lower judge. And The Guardian, Texas, execute Tommy Lynn Sells with compounded phenobarbital. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Pheno? Phenobarbital. Why is it spelled pinto? Maybe I spelled it wrong. It's true. Possibly did. <laughs> Listen, I'm into true crime, not into spelling. Okay? As long as I understand. That's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. So it picks up... Um, in 1994, where he is in prison, and he meets a new inmate by the name of John Price. John was a nurse who worked at a home health service, and three of his fa- friends were mysteriously found dead of dilated overdoses. Hmm. Hmm. While he couldn't be pinned directly for murdering them, he was found guilty of manslaughter for providing the drugs. He introduces um, Tommy to his sister, Nora. And Nora was intellectually disadvantaged, and Tommy preyed on her with his kindness. Um, she had been bullied for the majority of her life, and she had, you know, almost no kindness in her life. And Tommy came in super nice, even though he was a fucking asshole, and he schmoozed her. And then he conned her for her Social Security check money. Where, yeah, while he was in prison, like, a bunch of it would come into him. Versus, you know, like, she'd be putting money on his books all the time. So he decides he's going to propose to her. And she says yes. And they get married in prison in April of 1996. And at that point, three quarters of her check is written into his books every month. He gets two prison tattoos with her name incorporated on them. One with a rose and the other one, a Harley Davidson with a dragon. I have not seen this tattoo, (laughs) but I really hope... The dragon is riding that Harley. <laughs> I hope so too. That's what I envisioned. I'm gonna <laughs> just take it back, Hall. Do a quick Google and see if I can see the pictures <laughs> of him. Way. While he's in prison, he's diagnosed as bipolar and he's released untreated in May of 1997. He leaves Nora in West Virginia and calls her um, from Michigan June 1st saying he wants to get back together. He must have run out of money. Exactly what happened. They take the road hitchhiking before settling in Cleveland, 
And then he abandons her in Tennessee on August 28th, and she goes home sadly to West Virginia. He changes his mind again, and in September, goes and gets her from West Virginia and takes her to his mother's house in Missouri. And at this time, she was pregnant. Oh. He gets a job as a mechanic and goes three weeks clean from drugs and alcohol. And then by mid-October, he starts hunting again. He travels east to the Illinois-Indiana border in October of 1997. And he meets Julie Ray in a convenience store and states she was rude to him and he craved vengeance. He hunted after her and breaks into her home and grabs a knife. He goes to the first bedroom and finds her 10-year-old son, Joel, and stabs him in the chest and flees. Julie hears his screams and runs to her son's room to see the empty bed and catches Tommy wearing a sweatshirt drawn up to conceal his face. She runs after him and he fends her off and she abandons the chase and runs to a neighbor for help, calls the cops and report her son being abducted because it was dark. She didn't see her son. Uh, she had only seen Tommy and so she assumed her boy was gone. The police arrive to the scene and find Joel's lifeless body crumpled up on the floor with several stab wounds. Julie was taken to the ER with multiple injuries, including a black eye, bruises and scratches, internal bruising, wounds on her shoulders, and a gash that required five sutures. Now, I'm sure you possibly could do that to yourself, but I don't think so in this case. But she was accused of um, murdering her son because of the, oh, he was abducted, and then he was really dead back in the house. So that looks suspicious. They pretty much framed the murder on him and she ended up going to prison for it. <gasps> Eventually, after Tommy's capture, he did take credit for the murder and she was able to be exonerated. But, I mean, all the damage had been done. Her oh. child was gone and she'd lost years of her life in prison. In December 1997, he left Nora for the last time in their unborn child. April 1998, he gave up. she gave up her boy for adoption which was arranged by Tommy's mother, Nina. And she made sure that uh, Nora got fixed in case Tommy changed his mind again and came home. Which is like all those forced sterilization of people pretty much was like, oh, well, we're going to take care of this problem. You ain't never going to have kids again. I'm just kidding. This girl is a massive victim. In 1998, he met up with a carnival in Rancis Pass, Texas near um, Corpus again. Driving the truck that carried the Ferris wheel, he traveled with him to many towns, and he ends up in Del Rio, Tex Texas, near Laughlin Air Force Base. On March 5, 1998, Jessica Lovery brought her children to the carnival on an unseasonably, school unseasonably cool spring. She caught Tommy's eyes and says, "Wouldn't it be nice?" And he says, "Wouldn't it be nice to have a nice cup of hot chocolate?" And so she invites him home. I don't get it, y'all. They spend the night together, and many after that during his time in town. As he set out to the Gulf Coast, um, he invites her to Corpus Christi from, from there, to from Del Rio, and she decides to go with him. So she stays with him for a few days before he sends her back home on a bus. She returned in her old 88 a few days later, and they talk about her um, getting out of the car, putting her hands on the hip, and says, You ready to come home? He was absolutely smitten and came home to start being a family man. Family man. He would take the kids fishing. He took them to school and became sober with Jessica's help and worked faithfully. There was a, a point where 
he went on a road trip across Texas and he came home in time for this huge flood that came through with Del Rio and just destroyed everything. And they all survived, thankfully. Well, not him part, but the, her family <laughs> and her. And they got married in October 1998. How's he marrying all these people when he's still married to people? I feel, paperwork, I guess, weren't digital back in those days. They're like, you know, we're just winging it. How many times can you get married before you have to pay for a divorce? That's just expensive. <laughs> right? <laughs> Especially with all these goddamn children he has everywhere. All over the place. Um, after the flood and the marriage, he starts going back into uh, drinking and doing drugs. And they split. After the flood and wedding, because the flood, I guess, probably took a big emotional toll. And he started doing drugs and drinking again. Then she, Jessica was like, you know what? Until you get fucking clean, you can go. And that was in March of 1999. At one point, Debbie Harris and her daughter, Ambria, moved to Gibson, Tennessee, recently separated from her boyfriend, Jamie. In late March, you think he just left Jessica and them, travels up to Tennessee. He snuck quietly into their home and took a knife out of the kitchen. He snuck into her bed and put the knife to her throat. She did not resist so as to not make any noise and not awake, waken Ambria, knowing that if she brought attention that her daughter was there, that she would possibly be killed as well. He raped her, her taking it the whole time, just being like, okay, this will be over soon. And then he stabs her to death. As he's leaving, he finds Ambria awake and confused in a doorway. He stabs her to death. And then returns to Debbie's body to take one final stab, leaving the knife in her body. Days go by, and Debbie's landlord, who had been inspecting her on Good Friday to pay the rent she owed, wonders where Debbie is. It's not like Debbie, you know. She was always a woman of her word. She said she was going to come pay this back rent. But she also didn't want to hassle Debbie, because it was like 25 bucks. She was like, she'll come. You know, it's probably just stress, and then it's Easter, and all that. Or it's Good Friday, it's that holiday. Um, on Easter, a friend comes by and finds the door ajar and comes in and finds the decomposing bodies. They were so decomposed that the scene became a biohazard. Still, they searched the scene thoroughly to find no hair, DNA, or fingerprints from the assailant. Before their bodies were found, Tommy had made it to Greensboro, North Carolina, and met up with another carnival, which <laughs> made its way to San Antonio. How many goddamn carnivals? Always say a lot of carnies are creepy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm never going to another one, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and that'll also be a good excuse to get out of, like, children's carnivals. Mm. Have you heard about this carny? Hmm? Hmm? That kid over there looks very sus. <laughs> Follow our podcast. <laughs> Fiesta, at this time, was going on. It's a huge annual celebration in San Antonio. It's full of parades and celebrations to honor the heroes of the Alamo. And the battle is San, San, San Jacinto. San Jacinto. Jacinto. Okay, I was like, I, don't I mean, I go I'm to San that. Jacinto College, and it's pronounced Jacinto, so I would assume. I would assume. Um, with the Battle of Flowers, which was like everybody would like outdo each other with parade with the floats. Mary B. Perez, a nine-year-old, uh, visited the fiesta on April eighteenth. At 10 p.m. that night, she got separated from her family in the festivities. So there was like a shit ton of people. It sounds weird in COVID times, you know, like just being that close to other strangers. <laughs> like, ugh. 
Oof. I'm always like that, but well, I mean, yeah, but like especially now, I'm like, you know what? I've seen what life could be without you. <laughs> mm. And it's great. It's fantastic. So I guess she was holding someone's hand or walking behind somebody. And at one point, there's just so many people. She kind of got lost in the fray. And in the middle of that, Tommy abducts her. And this is a, another hard one. So just buckle up. He takes her to the stockyards nearby. And he sexually assaults her on a old mattress that was just abandoned out there. He used her Mickey Mouse shirt to strangle her. And during all this time, like, they found, they realized very quickly that she was missing. Her family was frantically searching. Um, the police in the community got involved. But nobody could find her. Well, a heavy rain happens in that location. And it floods. And it washes her body downstream. Ten days later, her body is found by a fisherman in Asalon Creek. Her community created the Mary B. broadcast. And it was like a primitive Amber Alert. Where when a child goes miss- missing, the airwaves are filled filled with details of a missing child because we didn't sell you cell phones were like just coming out and it was for rich people, you know. So to be primitive in this way of uh, it just coming across the stereos, and, and it was all these stations just got together and like if this happens, they call the station and all of us just that's what's going to keep playing until that child's found. While it sucks that the bear- Mary B died, at least it did inspire something that could save another child. Sells had left for Lexington, Kentucky, right after her murder, and he wanted to find some new hunting grounds. In Lexington, 13-year-old Haley McCone had a troubled childhood, having spent some time in mental hospitals for adolescence and was on medication for depression stemming from sexual abuse earlier she had had in her young life. On May 13th, she was out of school for a standing appointment with her psychiatrist. She had been rambling around that afternoon, riding her bike to the park, and Cell saw her swinging and on the in the park, and like a predator, she was like prey on a silver platter. He abducted her out of sight in the nearby woods, raping her in a pile of leaves and trash. Having experienced molestation before, she knew like she had already had this response. Like I've been through this before; it's gonna be over soon. I gotta survive, but she was not prepared for what was gonna happen next. He took her shirt. And he strangled her, leaving her in a small dip in the ground, covering her, covering her in leaves. He took her bike and went a couple blocks and sold the, her bicycle for $20. <laughs> and nearly midnight that night, Sells was found, pa- found passed out drunk in a public area and was arrested. He spent the night in the drunk tank and he was released early the next morning. And of course, he skipped town by jumping on a train. Jimmy's Fun Facts. Because this killer traveled around a lot, here is a fun travel-related fact. In the time it takes to play the Proclaimers hit song, I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles, the International Space Station will travel 500 miles, and almost exactly 500 more. He was headed north this time. Um, For 10 days, Haley's family looked for her until a man walking his dog found her. The dog had taken him off the pat and was like, and was really insistent and that's how he found the body in kingfisher county oklahoma 14 year old bobby lynn warford left her home july 2nd 1999 to go to a lake with her friends bobby lynn had done a little bit of a bait and switch game as kids will do teenagers will do Um, she ditched those friends for other friends that she knew her mother would disapprove of 
In the early hours of July 5th, Tommy spots her at a convenience store and she's looking for a ride and she's calling people and nobody's answering her and he's watching her and he says, oh, I'll offer you a ride. You want to go? And uh, as soon as they get in the car, he starts heading down the road. He goes, hey, you want some cocaine? And she's like, already, no. Mm -mm. Take me back to Love's, which is a gas station. And he gets pissed and he slaps her. He pulls off on an isolated road and forces oral sex on her. When he went to rape her, she fought back and he took a ratchet and jammed it up her vagina, making her panic more, opening the door. He shot her in the head because she was going to escape. He started cleaning up the mess, disposed of her body, and he left for Texas. Hmm. Her family reports her missing, but it's treated as a runaway case for a long time. It wasn't until November till a witness gives a description of a man seen with Bobby in a parking lot at Love's. The next day, a hunter finds Bobby's purse and items. Police find her skeleton hidden, um, ending the search for her. He had taken her and put her body underneath a bush out of the line of sight. At this point, Tommy moves back to Del Rio to be with his estranged wife, Jessica. And Del Rio, he, this is where I get really kind of mad. He's like, there's so many times that he could have been caught, right? And Del Rio, he had previously been charged with a sexual abuse of Jessica's daughter. And then she let him come back home? Yeah. Okay. Cool. After two rounds of interviews, the judge ruled that it was unfounded and he rejoined the family. I'm sorry. No. Mm-mm. Once it's done, that's it. Yeah. That's a, that's a separation of ways. I don't even want to chance it. Mm-mm. At this point, Tommy and Jessica are invited to church by Bill Hughes, which is his boss and the owner of Amigo Auto Sales. Terry and Crystal Harris went to that church that very same Sunday and met them. And then de- Terry decided to go over to Amigo Auto Sales since... You know, uh, Bill Hughes also attended church and owned it. He wanted to support another, you know, co-parishioner. He met Tommy, and Tommy actually sold him a vehicle. One evening, Tommy showed up to Terry and Crystal's house, to which they invited him inside. Sells admitted that he had a terrible past to prison and addiction and had marriage problems, with Terry trying to be Christian and help him by offering advice. All the while, Katie, which is Terry's stepdaughter, tells her sister that he makes her feel uneasy with how he looks at her because they're having this conversation and he's just watching her. In December of 1999, Tommy had reappeared after being AWOL with Jessica's van doing God knows what, and he runs up to the convenience store and calls his boss for his last check when he runs into Terry Harris again. Later that evening, he heads to a tavern because he had come come back and she was still pissed off at him and he was like I just don't want to deal with this goes to the tavern and starts getting shit faced until 2 a.m. and then he decides he needs to go to Terry's house to claim money that he was owed for cocaine that he had fronted him and what by his home his own home Terry's uh, not Terry's home Tommy's home grabs a knife a bony knife and decides he's going to head to the Harris home and this is where the ending's going to come up soon him thank god on december 31st 1999 in guajira guajia bay subdivision west of del rio texas 10 year old crystal searles was having a sleepover with her new friend 13 year old katie harris at 4 30 in the morning crystal woke to a scream 
And out of the dark, she's sitting on top of a bunk bed or laying on top of a bunk bed. And she looks down at the end of the bed and she sees an outline of a man. Shortly before, the man had actually entered through the house, in the house through the um, a window in Katie's brother's room. And Katie's brother is blind. And what was funny, well, not funny, what was interesting is that when he came through that window in her brother's room, he sat up and he goes, I wish you guys would stop being in my room. Like, get out of here. Because he's irritated, thinking that his sisters are playing with him. And so he goes through the, the door and he starts walking around the house. And he there's all, children all throughout the house. And he sees some two little girls in the living room. And then there's two more girls in another room. And then she finds the, he finds the mother of Katie. And he contemplates raping her. And he's like, no, and he keeps on walking down the hallway. That's where he found Crystal and Katie. The man entered the room and laid in the bed. And she was asleep during this. He cut her underwear and her bra. And he groped her with, her, his, with his fingers. And when he went to place him inside of her, she woke up and she screamed. And she starts jump, trying to jump up and escaping. And he decides, fuck it. Now's, now's go time. And he starts stabbing her. He stabs her a total of 16 times and then slits her throat. And when he does that, he's standing up with her. And the whole time, Crystal didn't bring any attention to herself. She's on the top bunk. And, you know, bunks usually have a little of a barrier so kids mm-hmm. don't roll off. She's watching her through the slats in that top barrier. And he says that he holds her back and slices. And then he comes back and does it again in the slowest manner and then drops her. He rushes to the door and then he turns around just to me like take survey of the room, make sure everything's there's anything he needs to do. And he sees Crystal. He rushes over and she begs him not to hurt her. Protecting her 80 pound petite frame with her hands, he brushes them aside and slices her neck open with a bony knife before leaving through the door. She feigned being dead, afraid that he would return because obviously He has no qualms about killing people. And finally, she decides she's got to get out of the bed. And it's dark. And she stumbles over Katie's body. And she lays down with her. And she's hoping to have, like, a reassuring hand, like, I'm okay, anything. And she's gone. And she gets up, and she stubs her toe on the ladder that had fallen down from the um, bunk bed. Now, she was staying with them like her sisters and her had been staying with the family while Katie's stepfather and her father and mother had went up um, to they were moving from another state down there and they were going to just tie things up and they were going to come back so it was just all the kids with the one parent at this point she starts she's not super familiar with the house and it's a trailer actually and and you know how trailers have like long narrow hallways She's feeling alone, and she's already assuming everybody's dead. So she's thinking she's got to go get help. And she goes to the front door, and she takes a quarter-mile walk. Barefoot, pajama bottoms, and a T-shirt. And she, Her throat slit. Her throat slit. And she goes to go to one neighbor's house, and that neighbor, she recalls, um, didn't like people trespassing on the property, and everybody had told her, don't go over there. Don't knock on their door. Don't talk to them. So she passes this house because she knows they're not welcoming and goes even further. 
down to another house. Herb Bentz was going to get up, and this was New Year's Eve. Herb Bentz was going to get up at 4.45 a.m., and then he changed his mind, turned his alarm off, and went back to sleep. And then at 4.58, uh, he hears the doorbell. And as he approached the door, he hears soft banging. And he looks out the peephole to see a girl. And he tries to say, who is this? And she goes to speak. And she can't. Because her throat slit. And he opens the door. And sees her. And she's got like clotted up blood. And it's covering her. And he could see her windpipe. Oh, Jesus. His wife had gotten up. Because he started hollering for her. And she tends to her as Herb decides to call the police. And at one point, he recalls that he was like, I almost forgot what how to call 911. It was like my brain was just so like, I can't even comprehend this. They lay her down in the kitchen. And Crystal specifically walked from the front door to the kitchen because she was scared that she was going to ruin their carpet. Mm. The sweetest fucking kid. Marlene brings her a pen and paper so she can communicate. And she writes... The Harrises are hurt. And then they ask her, well, where do you live? And she goes, Kansas. And they said, well, who did this? And she wrote, this guy. And then she stopped asking her questions because she kept getting paler because she was losing blood. At this point, you know, of course they had called 911, but the dispatchers had miscommunicated what the situation was. They heard about a girl being cut, and they thought it was an accident. And so they were driving up and down the highway, and they could hear them driving up and down the highway, but not coming down the driveway. At one point, uh, Crystal wrote on the piece of paper, Will I live? And Herb reassured her, despite being afraid that she was dying in his arms. The paramedics, paramedics finally arrived to assist, and they're like, whoa, hold up, because we were expecting something different, we don't have the stuff necessary. So they, of course, pick her up and take her down the you know to the hospital the police came and uh came over and herb lets them know like the harris family where they live they're hurt that's what this note says uh they decide to go over to the harris home where the door was slightly ajar they holler their arrival in case the assailant was still there and katie's mother and siblings wake to this and they're bewildered and they're informed of an emergency call asking about the current, current occupants and their welfare. He had only killed Katie and assaulted Crystal. He had not hurt anyone else in the house. Well, thank God. Mm-hmm. They searched the home. Uh, or he asked, like, she asked, like, you know, where are the kids? Well, you know, the one blind kid was in his room. There was another child that was passed out asleep in another room. The two girls in the living room were awake. The, another child was with the mother. And she goes, is there anyone else? Well, there's two more girls in this back room. And so they go back to that back room and they find um, Katie and her lifeless body on the floor. And they had to, of course, tell the mother at this point, Katie's gone. At that point, they asked where uh, Katie's mother's husband was. Her name is also Crystal, so I'm trying to avoid saying her name because it gets confusing. <laughs> And there, she was like, oh, well, they went up to Kansas to finish this up. And the ports of police are like, mm, likely story. But then they, they did confirm that he was obviously doing the Kansas thing. Uh, they gathered evidence that morning and into the evening. And they took Katie to San Antonio for an autopsy where Crystal was also 
in a hospital fighting for her life. She went into surgery, and thankfully her carotid artery was not severed, but her windpipe had been sliced in half, and many arteries cut, leading to blood seeping into her lungs. It would be days before they knew if she would live or ever talk again. In San Antonio, at the autopsy, they viewed Katie. Her neck was cut to the vertebrae, her carotid artery and jugular were severed, and had 16 stab wounds, three going all the way through her body, exiting to the other side. Jesus. He had hit her with such force. As soon as Crystal regained consciousness, she started motioning for a pen and paper. Like, this girl wanted to get it out. Like, she's almost a hero in this. It makes me think of the Delphi girls, you know. Mm-hmm. They asked, She asked for the police so she can help them find her attacker. And despite attempts to, because, you know, obviously this child just suffered something super traumatic. They're trying to ease her in. And she's like, no. I got to give you these fucking details, son. And with writing, she's like ready to spill it all out. And they're like, okay, well, and she let them know that she fully remembered what her attacker looked like. At, so it's the middle of the night and they brought forensics art artist, Shirley Timmons to help draw a sketch of Crystal's attacker. She would work with the artist and then she would start getting tired and she would take small little naps in between um, until the create, the sketch was finally created Pam and Doug Lucker, her boyfriend, which is um, Crystal's mother, Pam, arrived at the hospital in which the police asked about the suspects, possibly. The description matched a man he and Terry Harris had met at the Pecos gas station the night that they left Texas. If you recall earlier, he had gone up there to call his boss and ran into Terry. Once they had this drawing, it was certain it was this man. The thought his name, they thought his name was Tom or Tommy, and he worked at a, a local dealership. The Rangers called the local dealership owner Bill Hughes, and he would not divulge the name of his employee. Right? That's what I said. But he decided as soon as he got off the phone with the police, he called the Valverde Sheriff's Office, where he was good old buddies with the sheriff, and told him the name. Oh, okay. We're, so we're playing a game here with child's life. Cool, 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 cool. Absolutely. At the time, Terry Harris was actually uh, driving around, supposedly seeking revenge, even though he knew the name of the assailant. And a lot of people thought this was like a ruse, like he had done it and was blaming it on this man. At that point, the Texas Rangers contacted the Department of Public Safety and they got a six-person lineup and uh, because they knew it was Tommy, obviously. And this was peak Y2K, because if you remember the year 2000, everybody was worried about not the computers not being able to handle it and fall apart and shit. Mm-hmm. They got this lady up in the middle of the night, and she heads over to the DPS office, and she's like, here goes nothing, hits the power button, and thank God it turned on. <laughs> <laughs> and so they show her the pictures, and she carefully looks over and points out Tommy. And although he was beardless in the picture, because she he had a beard when he attacked her, she was positive it was him, and it was she was correct. They started scouring the countryside for cells. They found him five miles away in American Campgrounds Mobile Park with his wife Jessica and his stepchildren. Before six a.m. on January second, two thousand and one, they ambushed him outside his home with questions, and then they took him into custody without incident. He asked. They asked. Uh, do you know why we're here? And he goes, no, 
They said murder. He goes, okay. Just shrugs his shoulder like, all right. Sells agreed to a search, but then once he realized there was men actually surrounding his trailer, he started flipping the fuck out and was like, no, we're not doing this. Fuck this. And they're like, well, we're just going to have to serve a search warrant then. And they wait just so they don't break any kind of procedures because they want to fucking nail this guy. Perfect timing. Right. The story's about the police being there, the sirens. I mean, <laughs> woo, woo, woo. <laughs> it's going to seem like we added on purpose. Right. They found clothes covered with blood that matches the um, girl's blood type. They found a long bony knife, but he was like, that's not the murder weapon, obviously. He had actually had another bony knife that he liked, and he had tried to break it in half with his hands and cut the shit out of himself. And then he was like, well, that's not going to work. Tried to stuff it down the sink. Well, that didn't work. He ended up throwing it out in his yard somewhere. The pressure point for him was when he saw his wife being put in a squad car. So she had nothing to do with this. and She didn't know nothing about this. And so they, they assured him, like, no, we're just putting in there while we're searching the house. And we're just getting her statement. He just didn't want Jessica, which was one of the few shining spots of his life, to get for those crimes i can see what she looks like i don't think i even looked that up on the way to the station tommy tried confessing and the cops were like hey 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 let's save this for when we get into, into the interview room because we need to have this shit uh recorded for it to be admissible in court and legit and legit and he goes well i guess we have a lot to talk about i suppose you want me to tell you about the other ones oh they weren't expecting that, were they? Nope. They thought it was just this one-off thing. Lieutenant Larry Pope of Valverde Sheriff's Office and John Allen of the Texas Rangers Reed sells his rights and sat him down to the interview. He stated that Terry owed him around $5,000 for cocaine. Said it was really $3,000, but he had to make his cut, you know. <laughs> and the ranger, and it was funny because, like, there was, like, a recording of that, and the ranger was like, oh, I totally get that. It's business. <laughs> Okay. Like, I get that you're trying to identify with this guy, but... Mm. <laughs> he spoke about his drunken trip down to Terry's, which was not premeditated. He described the long, thin blade he used as the murder weapon, and he described trying to get into mo multiple windows before landing on the only one open. States that his actions... The actions he took to murder Ka Katie and attempt murder on Crystal in just, like, the easiest going way. Like, oh, I was like this... I came in, the kids said this, and then I walked into this room. Like, it's talking about a Sunday brunch. FYI, I couldn't find a picture of him. Oh, bummer. Eventually, he confesses several more crimes, and just like Henry Lee Lucas, the authorities take cell, cells on trips to identify all these murders that he claims. Police over the time came to suspect him of working the system by confessing to murders that he had not committed. During the trial, Crystal Searles took the stand in the fall of 2000 as a witness and victim of attempted murder. She was amazing, a brave girl, as the prosecution walked her through the retelling of details of that night, pointing out Tommy in the courtroom as an assailant. And this is like, all the times that he's been ruthless, at this point, he knew that she was going to be going on the stand, and they were like, he was like, I don't want to be in the courtroom. I don't want to be in the courtroom during the judge was like, Tough shit. You're going to be there. 
<laughs> On September 18th, 2000, they convict Cells for murder and, to, and sentence him to death row. And this is my favorite part. Um, Texas now has a law forbidding death row prisoners from leaving the state. So he couldn't take any more tours around the U.S. to claim crimes. Claim, claim, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Poor little baby. He's stuck mm. there. Oh, my goodness. Also, fun fact, they no longer allow last meal requests. They can eat what the rest of the uni- unit is eating or nothing at all. Word. <laughs> he is also found guilty for the murder of Marie, ba- Marie B. Perez, and that sealed his faith to death row. In April 2014, he got a stay for his execution, however. Not for innocence, but pertaining to the source of drugs needed for the execution. This was what year? 2014. States around the country at that time were having difficulty obtaining lethal injection drugs as international pharmaceutical companies actually refused to supply them for ethical reasons. Many corrections departments have actually turned to unregulated compounding pharmacies to obtain drugs such as phenoparmetol, um, a a powerful sedative for use in lethal injections. They cited an execution that pre- from that previous January of an Oklahoma prisoner who stated that he could feel his whole body burning as evidence. Who Didn't work, though. gives a fuck? I Judge guess. me if you want. I don't give a fuck if you do. Who cares that these motherfuckers are in pain when they die? Because that little baby girl was sure in pain when she died. You damn right. Every one of them was. So fuck him. What, what pain was Crystal Searles going through when she was walking a quarter mile to get help? Exactly. And still be worried about how clean that houses i mean bless her she like there's you could look up pictures of her and she's grown up now she still has a scar across her throat but thriving you know i need fucking bleeding hearts i don't i don't care jennifer i'm sorry i don't care that think these inmates should not be in pain when they get murdered on for execution which they should i hope you never listen to our podcast and i hope you die a painful death yourself You can cut that if you want. It's just my soapbox, man. I can't stand it. We're not cutting it. (laughs) (laughs) On April 3rd, 2014, he meets his end on death row in Huntsville, Texas. You know where that is? Oh, yeah. Right up the street. Right? When he asks if he would like to make a final statement, he says no. And that's his last words. He was injected with a lethal dose of sedative phenobarbital, and he began to snore. And then he stopped moving after less than a minute. And he was pronounced dead 13 minutes later. And he's buried near his mother and sister in Pine City Cemetery in Holcomb, Missouri. Full of misery. Piss on his grave. Fuck yeah, girl. We're going right now. <laughs> it's it's kind of fucked up because, like, the headstone is, like, a rudimentary one. Like, somebody put concrete and then they finger cut, wrote names. So it's like, Tammy Lynn. Or Tammy, whatever her middle name was, and there's Mama, and then him. And it's, like, all around it. I'm like, oh, God. Fuck. He doesn't deserve a marker. He didn't he deserve it. He didn't deserve anything good to happen to him. Like, Mm-mm. I, there are so many, I always hear, like, people like, well, he had a shitty childhood. But you know what? There are so many people who have shitty, abusive childhoods that choose not to kill. Yep. Just like we were talking about Johnny Depp. He had an abusive childhood, and he didn't even hit that bitch back. Not even one time. Team Johnny. Team Johnny. Team Johnny. Fuck that bitch. <laughs> I love every one of y'all except Amber Heard. 
<laughs> Good morning, everybody, except Amber. <laughs> I know it's tough topics, tough topics here. <laughs> it's the most tough topic since the Twilight Team Jacob or Team Edward. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> like, the most tough since then. Hundred <laughs> percent. Jennifer, thanks for bringing us right to You're reality. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I gotta laugh somehow because this was horrible. It I really was. was. Like, that and I didn't even write. If I had to, there was just that book was full of every story, every fucking thing that they think he did. And if I wrote down every one of those, there would have been like four episodes. It was like how you were with uh, Randy Craft. Randy Craft. Like it just at one point, it just becomes so much, too much. Too much, yeah. You know, I hate that we had to talk about that, but at the same time, it showcased just how ruthless. Like, could you imagine this little 10 year old girl, like, don't kill me? And you're like, he goes, put your hands down. And he takes his hands and just moves her hands out. How could you? I don't know. I don't know. Well, you guys, it's been a light, um, fun <laughs> subject. I'm so glad to get Tommy. Has. Get him out of your head. Get him out of my fucking, oh, God. And he's like, you can watch interviews on him. You just fucking hate him. Seeding. Seeding. Flames. Flames on the side of my face. <laughs> yeah, that's why I went on my rant about death row because people like him just make me sick. Well, in the meantime, guys, stay safe. <laughs> Keep your head on a swivel. And don't invite someone like him back home and bring you too close to home. Yeah, please, y'all. Leave the carnies alone. Leave them alone. Leave them where they're at. Leave them in the house. Leave the, the don't, don't bring him home. Begging homeless people there. Leave them there. Take him some stuff, but leave them there. Sorry. Bye. Bye. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.